Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you, George. Howdy, WCC. It's good to see everybody. Well, we are continuing today our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, but first I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. So 1 John chapter 2, we'll get there in just a second, but uh, before we say this, before we turn, let me say this, that today we're going to be looking at this passage from Hebrews 6, and as it turns out, this may be the most controversial passage in the Bible, so it's a tough one. Uh, If it's not the most controversial, it's in the top three. So it's an incredibly difficult passage, so we really need to wrestle with it and figure out what God is saying here. Um, Also, this passage is a frightening warning that we're going to look at in Hebrews, and it does appear, I'm going to talk about this, it does appear that Hebrews 6 is teaching, when you first glance at it, it looks like Hebrews 6 is teaching that Christians can lose their salvation. So we're going to talk about that in a second. But anyway, it's it's a difficult passage, a scary warning. And there's a part of me that does not like talking about warnings like this. I've talked about this before. But God has given us his word, and that's one of the beauties of going through a book of the Bible. He's given us his word, and you're just forced to, to deal with it. And so we need to wrestle with it, and we need to treasure it because this is God's word. All right, so before we turn to the passage, I want to give what is called a rule of interpretation. It, it's a, a, a way to, a rule to, to think about when we study the Bible and think about it. And really, for some of you, I think that this, this may be the most important part of the sermon because it will help you study the Bible and think about what God says to us through his word. And the reason why I want to talk about this rule of interpretation is it will help us think about the passage that we're going to consider today. So here's the rule of interpretation. I'm going to try to say it in a number of ways, but think about this when you're studying the Bible. Here's the rule. Let the clear interpret the unclear. Or let the, I can say it a hundred different ways, let the clear define the vague. Or let, the, let what is obvious interpret or rule over the ambiguous. Okay? However you want to say it, but the bottom line is this. We want to get the clear passages in the Bible fixed first in our minds. We want to get those established first. And then after we get those, then we try to figure out the difficult passages. If you have a Bible passage that's not clear, if you have a passage that's difficult to understand, don't try to build an entire doctrine on that difficult passage. That's what cults do. That's what false teachers do. They take a vague and unclear passage, and then they build a doctrine around it, and they ignore clear teaching on it. So we want to do the exact opposite. We want to get the clear fixed first and then start to wrestle with the ambiguous ones. So as I said, we're going to look at Hebrews 6 today, and as I said, when you first look at Hebrews 6, it does seem to be a reasonable interpretation that real Christians, genuine Christians, can can lose their salvation. That does appear to be a reasonable interpretation. Again, we're not even going to look at it yet, but it does appear that that's what it's saying. But but what you'll see as as you read through it, it's, it's a vague and a difficult passage. So again, we need to look and see on this issue... We need to look and see, are there any passages in Scripture which address the issue of whether Christians can or can't lose their salvation? That's what we want to look at. Before we look at Hebrews 6, are there passages that talk about, that say Christians can't lose their salvation? Are there passages? 
Yes, turns out there are. So let's look at 1 John. If you have 1 John, look at, at 1 John 2, 19. 1 John 2, 19. We're going to look at a few before we get to Hebrews 6. 1 John 2, 19. I want you to really think about what John is saying here. 1 John 2, 19. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, in my view, this passage is very clear. I don't think this is vague at all. And, and what John is saying is that there were some people within the church, within us, within the community of faith. But they left. They went out from us. Now, does John say they went out from us and at one time they were of us? Does he say that? Does John say that one time... They were real Christians, and then they left, and now they're not Christians anymore. That's not what he says. He says they were one, he says, that he, does, he doesn't say they were saved, and they were Christians, and now they're not. What he says is this, they were not one of us. They were never one of us. They were never genuine Christians. And he explains, he says, because if they had been one of us, if they had been true followers of Jesus, they would have continued with us. And he even says the fact that they left made it plain that they were not one of us. In other words, the fact that they left shows that they were not genuine Christians. Honestly, I don't see how John could say it any clearer than he, than he says right here. So this, to me, this is one of these clear passages. It teaches that folks who were in the church, in the community of faith, if they leave the church, and I'll talk about this, if they abandon Christ and don't come back, what it shows is they were never really one of God's people to begin with. Okay? So it's a clear passage, I think. So we take that, and then we start to interpret unclear passages. I'm going to give you another one. This is, this is John 6, and I'd encourage you to turn to John 6. We're kind of doing Bible drill today. I don't do this a lot. Most of the time I don't make you turn a bunch, but we're going to look at it today. John 6, beginning in verse 37. This is Jesus talking. John 6, 37. And again, we're thinking about, does the Bible ever say that Christians always will retain their salvation? That's the, the thing we're thinking about. So this is Jesus talking in verse, John 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And now, now think about what he's saying here. And whoever comes to me, ever, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that, listen, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says clearly, whoever comes to him in faith, he says, he will never cast out. He says, he will resurrect all the Father gives him. So he says this clearly, that whoever believes in him has eternal life, and he will resurrect all those who believe. Jesus does not say that he will raise up all those who believe except for the ones who lose their salvation. That's not what he says. He says, I will resurrect everyone who looks to Jesus and believes in him. Everyone. That's a universal statement. In the Greek, everyone means everyone. 
That's what it means, okay? So Jesus promises that he will raise up everyone who truly believes in him. If a person truly puts their faith in Jesus, then they're saved. They have eternal life right then, and nothing can change that. They can't lose their salvation. This is the last one. You don't have to turn to this one, but this is John 10, two verses, John 10, 27 and 28. John 10, 27 and 28, and Jesus says this, my, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Think about how beautiful this. I pray that, we, that some of us would hear Jesus speaking today. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Amen. That is a beautiful, I, man, I just hope that we rejoice in that and hear Jesus talking to us. Now, I had a friend in law school. And he was convinced that he had been saved. He thought he was saved at one time. And now he was convinced that he was unsaved. And I told him about this passage. We were talking about it. And you know what he said? He said, well, no one will snatch them out of Jesus' hand, but I can jump. That's what he said. He wanted to argue with me. And my response was, wow, you're more powerful than Jesus. That's, that's impressive. If that's your view, that you can jump out of Jesus' hands, then actually you're doing great violence to the passage. Because the whole point of Jesus telling us this is to give us assurance that he will save every single one of his sheep. He gives eternal life and his people will never perish. That's the whole point. He doesn't say, I give them eternal life, but but some of them will perish. And some of them will jump out of my hand. That's not what he says. So if someone believes in Jesus, if a person is one of Jesus' sheep, that means they will always believe in him. They will always have eternal life, and they will never perish. Never. So again, I would say this is a clear teaching, so we get our minds fixed on these clear teachings, and then we try to figure out difficult passages that address the issue, okay? We get these things settled in our minds, and for, especially for young Christians, I would just go to those clear passages and get those settled. Get those fixed in your mind and in your heart. And then wrestle around with the other stuff. All right, now let's turn to Hebrews 6. With all that background, now let's turn to Hebrews 6. And what I want to do, we're going to start in Hebrews 6, verse 4. And what I actually want to do is to outline the passage, kind of give you an outline before we even start to read it. Uh, We'll outline it, and then we'll kind of walk through it. But I don't want us to get bogged down in it. So we're looking at Hebrews 6 verses 4 to 12 that's the passage today and here's the outline and I think it's really important to get the outline settled first here's the outline there are three parts there is one there is a warning two there is an illustration and then three there is encouragement okay so there's warning illustration and encouragement the warning is in verses 4 to 6 we'll look at it the author gives this sober and scary warning So that's one, the warning. Then he gives an illustration. That's number two. That's verses seven and eight. Illustration. And then he gives encouragement. Encouragement, that's verses nine to 12. All right, so I'm going to read Hebrews 6. We're going to go verses uh, four through 12. Let's read it. Let's read it. It says this, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, he says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land, so that's the, that's the warning. For land, now this is the illustration. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it 
and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So that's the illustration, and now we're going to get the encouragement. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so again, we've got the warning, the illustration, and then the encouragement. I actually want to start with the encouragement first. I'm going to take this a little bit out of order. I want to start with the encouragement, which is verses 9 to 12. And so here's what the writer's saying. Again, in verse 9, he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's saying these, the warning, these people mentioned in verses 4 through 6, and we'll talk about them in a second. But these people have rejected Jesus. They've, they've fallen away. But he's saying, in your case, beloved, in your case, we're confident that you're going to be saved. We're, we're sure of better things with you. He says, things that belong to salvation. So he's saying to them, I'm confident you have real faith. I'm confident you're going to be saved. So this is the encouragement. Verse 10, he says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So he's encouraging them, and he's saying, I'm confident you're going to be saved because one of the marks of a person who's saved, one of the things that belong to salvation, he says, is that they care about the saints. This is fellow Christians. They care about fellow Christians, those who are believers. So he's saying, you're showing love to God's people. You care for people in real ways. In other words, you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's one of the fruits of a person who's saved. I'll say this, listen, if a person has no love for other Christians, that's a huge warning sign. But he's saying, with you guys, I see this love that you've shown in serving the saints. Then verses 11 and 12, he said, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says, I want you to show the same earnestness or the same diligence in loving and serving others. He says, I want you to continue loving and serving others in the church in a diligent and earnest way. And this diligence leads to this hope characterized by conviction and assurance. So he's saying, I want you to have assurance of hope. He He doesn't want us to doubt. That's not the point of this passage. He doesn't want us to doubt. He wants to have assurance, us to have assurance of hope, assurance of salvation. And he says, I want you to continue, he says, the end of verse 11, he says, until the end. Until the end. The writer of Hebrews says this over and over again, that one of the key marks of a real Christian is they continue in their faith all the way to the end. They persevere in their faith all the way to the end of their lives. So if a person continues living out their faith until the end of their lives, that's a great sign. It shows true faith in Christ. Then again, in verse 12, he says, so that you may not be sluggish. That means dull or negligent. And we talked about this actually the last time I preached. He doesn't want them to be dull of hearing. He doesn't want for them to be spiritually immature and negligent in their faith. He wants them to grow up in their faith. And so he says he wants them to imitate other Christians who are really living out their faith. 
Okay? So remember Hebrews the 6, 4 to 12, we're looking at this outline. And the outline is the warning, the illustration, the encouragement. We just looked at the warning, I mean the encouragement. Now let's go back and look at the warning. Okay, this is the warning which begins in verse 4. And this is the tough part about this passage. The warning is a very specific warning, and I want to make sure we understand that. It's a very specific warning. It's a warning against apostasy. That's the big word, apostasy. What does apostasy mean? Apostasy happens when at one time a person says, yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, Christianity is true. They're in the church. They make this profession of faith. They profess that Jesus is Lord. Then that person changes their mind. They fall away. They deny the faith. So they used to confess that Jesus is Lord, but now they say, I don't believe that anymore. They say Christianity is not true. I don't believe Jesus is Lord. So this is a warning against apostasy. Apostasy happens when you have a person who said they've trusted in Christ, but now they've fallen away, they've left the faith, and this is important, they decisively reject Jesus, okay? This is the warning in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. It's a warning against apostasy. And the warning is this. This is why this is so scary. He's saying for people who have these certain characteristics that we're going to look at, and they're involved in the Christian community, this certain group of people, if they fall away in a certain way, we'll talk about that as well, but if they call themselves Christians and now they deny the faith, if that happens, then it's impossible for them to come back. Now, I don't want you to jump to any conclusions yet, okay? Just hold on for a second. Just hold on to this because, again, this warning is very specific. And, again, it's this. If a certain group of professing Christians do something in particular commit some act of apostasy, then it's impossible for them to come to Christ. It's impossible for them to be saved. This is a very scary warning. But again, it's also a very specific warning. I want to talk about that. I want to, I want to talk about who it's not addressed to. Okay, We'll do that near the end of the sermon. So let's, again, read verses 4 to 6. Okay, And I, and I really hope, I just pray the Lord speaks to somebody today. But listen to these. 4 to 6. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So that's the warning. And as I, again, I want to stress, I'm convinced those other passages we looked at, 1 John 2, John 6, John 10, I'm convinced those passages clearly teach that genuine Christians, people with real faith in Jesus, cannot lose their salvation, okay? So we're trying to, again, allow the clear to interpret or rule over the unclear. So those clear passages teach that real Christians can't lose their salvation. So now we come to this passage, and I believe... The writer here to Hebrews in this passage is talking about non-Christians. Okay, I want to say that. And the writer is, to the Hebrews is talking to these Jewish people. That's the audience. He's addressing these Jewish believers who've coming out of Judaism. And they're being persecuted. We'll see that later in the book of Hebrews. They're being tempted to abandon Jesus. They think they can still get to God if they abandon Jesus. And he's telling them, you can't. You can't. They're tempted to abandon Jesus and go back to Old Testament Judaism, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament priesthood, 
And the writer says, if you do that, if you turn your back on Jesus, if you, if you decisively turn your back on Jesus and you have these characteristics, then you lose the opportunity to be saved. The door is going to be shut on you forever. Okay? Now notice this. Look, at, look, at, look back at Hebrews 6 verse 3. Hebrews 6 verse 3. He uses the word we. He says we. He says, and this we will do if God permits. Okay, we. So he's saying you and I, we're, he's talking about growing in spiritual maturity. You and I, we will grow in spiritual maturity if God permits. We. But then look at verse 4. He transitions. He doesn't say we or even you. He transitions and he starts talking about a different category of people. So remember, this is the warning, verses 4 to 6. He doesn't say you, us, we, or whatever. He says, in the case of those. Okay? He is talking about a different category of people that have these certain characteristics. It, it, in three, he says, we, remember, and we looked at the, uh, at the encouragement in verse 9. He goes back to we. He says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel better, sure of better things, things that accompany salvation. So it starts out with we, it ends with we, and in between is in the case of those. Okay, so it's a different category, all right? So, and he gives them this warning. He's saying this category of people, if they have these certain characteristics and then they fall away, then it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. So before we talk about what exactly it means to fall away, and that, that is huge. That may be the most important part of this, I think, that what it means to fall away. Um, before we do this, who are these people? What are the characteristics of these people. Well, we find the characteristics of these folks in verses 4 and 5. So he says this. He says, those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So this group of people, or this type of person, they've had some experience with God, with the Holy Spirit, with, with the people of God, and with the Word of God, right? And he's saying, if this type of person falls away, then they're not going to be saved. As I said, I don't think these folks are genuine Christians. They don't have real faith. They have some experience. They have some experience that is very close to genuine faith. They've professed faith in Christ. They've been in the church, but I'm convinced they're not genuine Christians. And the writer's saying if these people fall away, they can't be saved. So let's go back. Let's work through some of the characteristics. Verse 4, he says... For it is impossible. And in the, in the Greek, in verse 4, it starts out with the word impossible. I don't know much Greek, but I know they can move words around pretty easily. And so the, it starts out like this, impossible. It's like impossible it is. He wants to stress impossible. It's like I do my Yoda thing. Impossible it is. You know, he, he, impossible it is if they do this thing. So he wants to stress the impossible part of this. And he's saying it's impossible, and then he gives this these examples. He says, in the case of those who have been, once been enlightened. Enlightened. What does that mean? The, the Greek word enlightened is like photizo. It's like photo. Okay? So it's, it has to do with light. It's receiving the light. The, the only time, other time the writer of Hebrews uses this word is Hebrews 10.32. And he said, remember those earlier days. Think about your days, early days as a Christian. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, calls the light of the gospel. 
So I believe what he is saying is you've been enlightened. You have received the light of the gospel, the light of the good news of Jesus. To be enlightened, I think this is a person. I think that's what he's saying, a person who's been in church and they've had some exposure to the light of the gospel. Jesus is the light of the world. They have some hearing about the light of the gospel. We're trying to allow scripture to interpret scripture here, okay? So they've received the light of the gospel. Next phrase, it says, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted the heavenly gift. I think what this means is they have received some experience of a heavenly gift, of a gift coming down from heaven, from God. They've they've had some experience of receiving some blessing from heaven, from God. But I think the tasted means it only happened for a limited amount of time. And the reason I say that is because in Hebrews 2.9, the writer says that Jesus tasted death. It doesn't mean Jesus continued to experience death. He tasted it, and then he was raised. So he had this short experience of death. So when, he, when, this, when the writer says right here that, that these people have tasted the heavenly gift, I think it means of receiving some blessing for a short amount of time. I think it's a tasting of some blessing from God for a short amount of time within the context of the church. Okay, So they've received some blessing from God for a short amount of time. The next one is shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a tough one, but to share or partake means to be companions with or to have close association with. So someone who is shared in the Holy Spirit, it means they have some close association with the Holy Spirit. Now, notice the writer does not say They've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that the person has been given spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. Also something that you need to look at. Does the writer know the word salvation? Does he know that word? He does. I don't know if you caught it. In verse 9, he says, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That Greek word is like soteer. We get the word like soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. He knows the word salvation. But when he's describing these people, he's going out of his way not to use that word. He's saying everything he can not to say that. They're, he knows the word salvation, but he doesn't use it here. Okay? So shared in the Holy Spirit, as I said, it doesn't mean he doesn't say they've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. He said they've had some close association with the Holy Spirit, whatever that means. Okay? We're trying to wrestle with it. Then verse 5, he says, tasted. Here's this word again. Short-time experience, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So again, tasted means they have this short experience, not too long. So, so somehow, these folks have witnessed or experienced the goodness of the Word of God. Perhaps, and, perhaps, and, and they've seen the power of God. Perhaps they've seen the power of God transforming other people. Okay, So it looks like they've been in church. They've seen the goodness of the Word of God. Maybe they've seen people's lives transformed. So, so all these descriptions, to me, it looks like this is describing someone in church. They've had some short experience, some limited experience of being really close to God's blessings in the church. Okay. And then in verse six, he says, these people who have these characteristics, they've had these experiences. If they fall away, he says, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. If they fall away, it's impossible for them to be brought to salvation. Okay, fall away. This is huge. What does this mean? This is so important, I think. 
And again, the way we understand Scripture is by trying to figure out context. You look around what, what is happening around the passage. In verse 6, actually, the writer describes what the falling away is. Later on, he says they've fallen away, and then he describes what the falling away is. And here's what he says. As he says, they are crucifying, think about the words, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. That's the description of falling away, crucifying Jesus. So what does that mean? It means this. Think about the people who actually crucified Jesus. Who were the people that, that said crucify him? They were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones who wanted Jesus crucified. Now think about this. Did the Pharisees have any experience with Jesus prior to saying that he should be crucified? They did. They had a lot of experience. They had a, a really close communion with Jesus. They had received the light of the gospel through Jesus' teaching. People heard Jesus' teaching and they say, we've never heard anybody teach like this. The Pharisees had this close experience of this. The Pharisees had an experience of receiving this heavenly gift. Jesus is the, the bread of heaven, right? Coming down from heaven. They had received this by being in close fellowship with Jesus. Remember the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism. The Pharisees are there. So the Pharisees had this close association with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. The, the Pharisees also saw the power of God working through Jesus, didn't they? They saw him do miracles. They, they knew he, he raised people from the dead. They saw all this. The, the, again, they heard his teaching. They saw all this. They had all this close association with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, with his power. And what was their response? They didn't put their faith in Jesus. They didn't repent. What did they do? Their response was they murdered him. That was their response. They nailed him up to a tree. They killed him. And, as this passage says, they held him up in contempt. They despised him. That was their response. So here in the text, when it says these church people have all these characteristics, if they fall away, I'm convinced what this means is, like the Pharisees, they have a taste of all the blessings of Christ while being in the church. And now they've fallen away. Meaning, like the Pharisees, they have, this is huge, they have decisively and finally rejected Jesus. That's apostasy that is being described here. It's, this is a decisive rejection of Jesus. It's a decisive final rejection of Christ. And that's what I want you to hear today, which is what's being described here. It's the decisive and final rejection of Christ. That's the falling away, okay? And we can actually see this in the illustration that follows. So that was the warning. Now we get to 7 and 8, and we have the illustration. Here's the illustration, verse 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose, uh, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed in its end is to be burned. So imagine two parcels of land, say an acre each. Okay, Both of these parcels of land receive the same amount of rain. And one parcel produces a useful crop, crop of vegetables or whatever. And the other parcel produces thorns and thistles. 
weeds, briars, whatever. Okay? This illustration is describing different people, different types of people in the church. Both people receive the rain. In other words, think about rain. It comes down from heaven, right? They receive this blessing, this life-giving blessing. That's what rain is. Life-giving blessing from heaven. People in the church have this experience. They're exposed to the sunlight of the gospel, right? They're exposed to this. They have this experience of receiving these great things from God. Both in the church, they have some nearness to the Holy Spirit. They have experience of the goodness of the word of God. They've seen God transform people's lives. So this is the rain falling on these parcels of land. Both people receive God's blessings by being in the church and hearing the gospel. But the result of these different parcels of land is, and the different people, is the fruit that results in these types of people or these types of land are very different. One type of person, type of parcel or whatever, produces a good crop, Right? People have genuine faith produce a good crop of trust in the Lord, persevering in their faith, loving other believers, serving the Lord. That's one group. And verse 7 says, that's describing verse 7, this group, this group of people showing real fruit, they will receive a blessing from God. They will receive. They will get eternal life. They get heaven. But the fruit of the other one, the thorns and thistles, weeds and briars, they've received the same blessing, right? They've received the same rain. The same teaching, the same benefit of being around Christians. But this group produces thorns and thistles in their lives. This group produces the thorns, in the context here, of denying Jesus. Decisively and finally rejecting Jesus. In other words, they're joining with the Pharisees who crucified Jesus. That's the bad land that produces the thorns and thistles. And what's the result? Look at verse 8. It says, it is worthless and near to being cursed... And its end is to be burned. This is judgment. This is God's judgment. Being burned is a picture of God's judgment. When it says this, when it says it's near to being cursed too, that doesn't mean it's in close proximity being cursed, but there's a possibility of getting away. The, the near to being cursed is like this, like you're on a destination and you're almost there. You're, you're near it. Okay, so the near, and you're going to get there. That's the nearness. It's not like you're standing there and you could back away. It's, it's like we're near this exit and we're going to be there. That's the nearness that is being described here. So these people who produce the crops of thorns and thistles in their lives, they produce this crop, again, of decisive and final rejection of Jesus. They're approaching, they're near their final destination, and they will certainly arrive there. There's no way of escape. There's no way to avoid them being cursed, being burned, so they have no chance of escape. That's the illustration, okay? You see how scary this is? You see why I don't like preaching on this stuff? But I have to. Because God has given us his word. All right, the, again, the apostasy being described here is the decisive and final rejection of Jesus, like the Pharisees who crucified Jesus, okay? Now, let me talk about the people this is not describing. This is so important. First of all, this passage is not describing your average non-churchgoer. That's not who this is. This is not describing friends who just aren't in church. That's not what this is describing. It's not describing your average secular person. That's not what it's talking about. And the falling away here, this is huge too, the falling away here is not being trapped in some sin. 
This is not talking about backsliding. Backsliding is an old word you don't hear much anymore. It's a good word. But this is not talking about backsliding. This is not talking about the falling away in the sense of doing some horrible, sinful thing. That's not what this is talking about. Many of the heroes of the Bible, Moses, David, Paul, they, they did horrible things like murder people, right? So this is not that. The, again, the apostasy described here in Hebrews 6 is, is not doing some terrible thing or getting caught in some horrible sin. I hate to tell you this, but genuine Christians can fall into terrible sin. It's just a fact. Sin can deceive Christians. Real Christians can go through a season where they fall away from the church, where they get into some gross, terrible sin. They can be hurt by the church. Real Christians can be deceived by their own sin. They can be deceived by Satan. Real Christians can have their lives being a train wreck, right? But they haven't made a decisive and final rejection of Christ. They're genuine Christians. Their lives can be messed up. Many of us can testify to this, right? That even as Christians, we can have messed up lives. But Jesus says he will always hold them. He will never let them go. So the apostasy described here in Hebrews 6, again, is not doing some horrible thing or getting trapped in some awful sin. It's not talking about backsliding. So, again, think about the, what I want you to hear is if you have friends, family who have fallen away from the church, that doesn't mean they're hopeless. They may still, I think I still have faith in Jesus, or I don't know. Those are okay. This passage is not talking about them. This passage is talking about apostasy, the, as I keep saying, the decisive and final rejection of Christ. And that means if the, for these people have these characteristics, if they're within the church, they've had some experience, we don't exactly know. And I would never say, I, I, would, I would never say that I know somebody has committed apostasy. I just don't know. I can't say it that they've had this. But these are the characteristics being des- described here. And if the, all this stuff happens here, if, again, if they decisively and finally reject Christ, if they say, I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, I reject him, I don't think he's the only way to God. If they say, I don't think salvation is found in Jesus, I reject him, I won't worship him, I'm going a different way. If all the characteristics that described him before and that, if that happens, then this is saying it's impossible for them to be brought to salvation. It's impossible. They're condemned by God. But don't think that you know who it is, okay? Don't, don't try to think that. There was, there was a... A pa- some pastors and people that told John Bunyan once that he had committed the, un- committed the unpardonable sin. He was lost. Don't tell people that. You don't know, okay? We don't know. But this is a stern warning. Now, listen, it says it's impossible for them to be brought back to life. I think this is, or to repentance. I think this is important too. Why is it impossible? It's impossible. I think this is the same thing as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Again, it's this final rejection of Christ. It's basically, this rejection is basically saying that Jesus is evil. Just like the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is saying the Holy Spirit is evil. So these folks who make this final rejection, they can't be brought back to repentance. Now, this is important too. It says cannot, they cannot, it's impossible, they cannot. It's also a will not. The, The person can't be saved because they refuse to be saved. They will not submit to Christ. This is a person who doesn't want to be saved. They've made this final rejection. They don't hear the warning. They're not concerned about their soul. They've rejected the Christian faith. They think Jesus is a fraud. They're not going to worship him. They've rejected him decisively, and they don't care. 
That's another thing. They're not concerned about this warning at all. Which means this, if, you've, if a person is concerned about the warning and hears the warning, or if a person thinks they've committed this sin, then the irony is you haven't committed the sin because your conscience is still soft. If you're, if you're concerned about that, there are people that have committed terrible sins, but they don't, they've been in the church, but they don't want to reject Jesus. They don't want that. But this is talking about, again, a different group of people. For them, the warnings are a joke. They don't care about the warnings at all. I'm going to give you an example of somebody that thought that they had been lost, but they, they didn't fall into this category. This was in the 1600s in Scotland. I'm almost done. I know I'm going long. But in the 1600s in Scotland, there was a woman who thought she had committed the unpardonable sin. She thought that she was one of these people described here in Hebrews 6. She had been active in the church. She showed fruit in her life. She had professed faith in Christ, but now she firmly believed that it was impossible for her to be saved. She was convinced that she had turned away from Christ. She thought she had denied Christ and that he had denied her. That was her state of soul. So she was absolutely convinced, like Hebrews 6 says, that she had effectively crucified the Son of God all over again. And no matter how many times people tried to talk to her about this, she rejected it. She was convinced, absolutely convinced, that she was on her way to hell. And there was no way out. Okay, there was no hope. And she was so despairing of this, she tried to commit suicide a number of times. She tried to kill herself a number of times. Again, this was the 1600s. Finally, the Scottish pastor named Donald Cargill, Donald Cargill, he ended up being a martyr. He came to see her. And the first few times he visited her, she remained the same. She was despairing and convinced that she was damned. Well, Pastor Cargill came back to talk with her again, I don't know, fourth or fifth time. And here's the account of what happened. I've updated the language a little bit, but here, here it is. It says, he at last came to her again and still found her no better. She was still rejecting all comfort, and she was still crying out that she had no interest in the mercy of God or the merits of Christ because she had committed the unpardonable sin. Pastor Cargill stared at her for a long time. Then he took out his Bible and said her name, and he said this, I have this day a commission from my Lord and Master to renew the marriage contract between you and him. If you won't renew your devotion and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, then I require you to swear on this Bible that you will give up all your rights and interests to Christ. So basically he said, either you renew your devotion and commitment to Jesus right now, or you swear on this Bible that you're abandoning Christ. You swear on this Bible that you're rejecting Jesus. And he offered her a pen and paper and said, now write the vow out. Well, she was quiet for some time, but at last she started crying. She started weeping, and with tears, she cried out, and she said, salvation has come to this house. She said, I take him. I take Jesus on his own terms. She, she knew. She knew she could not reject Jesus. And through the tears, she was brought back to a sense of peace with God because she knew she loved Jesus and she knew Jesus loved her. You see, this woman, she thought she committed this unpardonable sin, but she had not decisively and finally rejected Jesus. She had not crucified the Son of God again. And she revealed that because she was concerned about it. She was concerned about the warnings. So again, if you have friends who have drifted away from Christ, drifted away from the church, don't assume that they're lost forever. 
Don't assume that. Because for almost all of our family and friends, this Hebrews 6 passage doesn't apply and there's still hope. Now again, the passage is a sober warning. There's no denying that. It's a frightening warning. And I don't want to minimize it. And if you realize that you're falling away from Christ or falling away into patterns of sin, falling away from the Lord, then allow these warnings from Hebrews to wake you up. Oftentimes God will use these warnings to get people out of a slumber and turn back to Christ. And I would say this too, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, give your life to him. Listen to the warnings as God personally speaking to you. Listen to the warnings as Jesus personally talking to you. And and he's telling you, "Turn, turn in faith to him. And if you do that, he promises to forgive. Remember what Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, but will raise him up on the last day. So turn to him in faith. And for those of us who are committed to Christ, I think this warning is still beneficial for us because if nothing else, it reminds us just how gracious God has been to save us. We deserve it all, that, he, that the judgment of God, we deserve it, and yet he loves us and saved us. Jesus went to the cross. He died the death that we deserved. He received the judgment that we deserved. He received that in himself. So now for God's people, there's no more condemnation hanging over us. There is no more judgment awaiting us. And we remember what, when we remember what Christ has saved us from, we remember that he plucked us up, plucked us like brands from a fire. When he did this, and he did this because he loves us. And we remember this, our hearts well up and praise and worship to our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we love you and praise you. Lord, thank you for these serious passages. I I pray that my beloved church family would spend time just thinking about some of these warnings. I pray that this would also cause us, as I said, to, to rejoice in the fact that you love us and saved us, that Jesus, you died for us and you care about us and nothing will ever separate us from from your love, nothing. So I pray our hearts and our minds would really, that we would just praise you and live for you and want to turn away from sin and live for you. Lord, we love you. And we do pray for our family and friends that we're thinking about. Maybe they've been in church and they've fallen away. We pray for them even now. Even now, on this Sunday morning, maybe they're at home someplace, that you'd work in their hearts. You'd bring them back. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd grant grace and mercy to our friends and family and neighbors who maybe have turned away. So we, we lift them up to you. We love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being here, for caring about us and loving us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's now the time in our service.